1: Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're going to be teaching the four stages of enlightenment and the ten fetters. This is where you're going to learn about the ten individual pollutions of mind that the Buddha taught to eliminate in order to get to enlightenment. And then we're going to be talking about these four stages that the mind's going to go through as it moves closer and closer to enlightenment. So I'd like to welcome all of you and let you know that as we go in our class that you're welcome to ask any questions that you like you can put those into facebook youtube or zoom or in zoom you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like So far in this group learning program, what we've been discussing is we've been talking at one point about the Four Noble Truths. In the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha gives this layer of understanding of what's causing the discontentedness in the mind. And he talks about craving, desire, attachment. And this is kind of like the first layer of understanding the unenlightened mind and what's causing it to be shaken up in discontent. In four individual statements, he explains what is discontentedness. Those conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, where the mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition. And those feelings are only temporary because they're based on some condition. That's why that conditioned happiness is uninteresting or you know not something that you would be interested in continuing to experience because as long as you're experiencing that conditioned happiness then that means it's only a matter of time before you experience sadness and anger and frustration and others by the time you get to enlightenment the mind is in this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy that is unconditioned you might think about it as unconditioned happiness that the mind is not needing any particular condition in order to experience the happiness or the joy so this conditioned pleasant feelings conditioned painful feelings and conditioned Feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is discontentedness. Then he teaches the second noble truth, which is the cause of discontentedness, is the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, wanting things to be permanent, where the mind chases after the objects of its affection, longing and yearning. And if it gets the objects of its affection, then it gets these temporary pleasant feelings. But if it doesn't get the objects of its affection, it gets these painful feelings. And sometimes what we do is we push people or we push situations out of our life, this is called aversion. Or we become bitter and hostile and aggressive through our moral conduct and then this causes people to choose to go away from us. And then in the third noble truth, the Buddha talks about the way to eliminate this discontentedness is eliminate craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness chasing after the objects of our affection, thinking the next new shiny object around the corner is going to be lasting and fulfilling is you can eliminate that. And he teaches breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity as a generalized training to be able to train the mind to do that. And then in the fourth noble truth, he says the Eightfold Path is the way to completely eliminate all discontent feelings. So this is the first layer of understanding of the discontent mind, the unenlightened mind. And then the way the Buddha teaches is he pulls back these covers and helps you to get deeper and deeper into understanding what the true problems are. And there's this other layer of detail called the three poisons, or the three unwholesome roots, or the three fires. We're going to be exploring this in chapter eight, and I'm going to go into detail about it. I've discussed it a little bit here and there, but when we get to chapter eight, we're going to be really discussing it in detail so that you understand that craving, yes, that's part of the problem, is longing and yearning for these certain objects of our affection and if you get what you want you get pleasant feelings if you don't get what you want you get painful feelings and then there's these neither painful nor pleasant feelings well when the mind doesn't get what it wants one of the painful feelings that it goes to is this anger this hatred this ill will and this is where the mind becomes bitter and hostile resentful towards others and we become unskillful in our moral conduct And then there's this third aspect of the mind called ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The mind is misunderstanding what is actually causing its discontentedness. We tend to blame other people for our discontent feelings or we blame the situation. And that's why we tend to be hostile and bitter towards people because we have wrong view or we push people out of our life because we have wrong view. So it's only because of ignorance that craving and anger actually continues to persist in the mind. And this is why you don't believe any of the teachings of the Buddha. You get to wisdom because that's what antidotes that ignorance, that unknowing of true reality, the confusion or the misunderstanding. So now you can actually skillfully eliminate craving and anger when you have wisdom. But as long as the mind is in ignorance, then you're not going to be able to eliminate the discontent feelings. And that's why you come to classes and you read books, you ask questions, you reach out for help to your teacher and things like that. Well, that's kind of like the next level of detail, the three poisons, three unwholesome roots, and three fires. And there are solutions and details at that level that we'll talk about in more detail as the program goes. And then there's another layer of detail that all of this comes to. It's called the 10 fetters, and that's what we're gonna be discussing today. Because in order to get to enlightenment, you're gonna ultimately need to understand each individual fetter in detail, and the remedy and how to solve it. You might not be ready to go out today and actually address these fetters, but what I'm doing in this group learning program is I'm providing this overview over the course of multiple classes to give you a, a wider perspective, but yet really in depth of what the path to enlightenment is like. And then next week, we're going to be starting with chapter one in the book. We're going to be starting from the very beginning. But here you're getting these kind of overview, but yet an in-depth understanding of what the path to enlightenment is like. And so far, I've been sharing the Eightfold Path and building you guys up to understand the wisdom, the moral conduct, the mental discipline. I've taught you breathing mindfulness meditation, which is something that you need. And then as we talked about... The eightfold path last week under the mental discipline i described those four jhanas that the mind goes through before it reaches the first stage of enlightenment and we talked about these four jhanas as preliminary phases that the mind moves through certain qualities of mind that come into the mind and get produced as the mind moves into this first stage of enlightenment Well, now what I'm going to be describing is these 10 fetters, because once you're in the jhanas, that's when you start focusing on the 10 fetters. Early on in your practice, you're just working to understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. You're building your meditation practice and you're working with these things. And this is essentially what I'm going to be teaching over the first kind of seven weeks from starting next week until chapter seven, that's all the core teachings that we're gonna be talking about over the next seven weeks. So that's what a practitioner is mainly working on at the beginning. But here, I would like you to understand what the 10 fetters are in the four stages of enlightenment so you understand the ultimate goal. And as long as you're learning, The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, Meditation, and all these core and central teachings. The Buddha's teachings are all guiding you to eliminate these ten fetters. So there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to be obsessed about or anything like that. But instead, you would like to have general awareness of them at this point and how to actually antidote them. And just know that as you're building up your foundational core and central teachings and practicing these in your daily life, you're working to eliminate these But then eventually you're going to get to the point where you're in the jhanas and you're going to be interested to focus on them much more clearly. And that's where you might decide to pull this up or you might decide to consult with me or you might be in a class in the future about these in more detail. But here you can just take this class as general awareness and general understanding, even though we're going to go into it in detail. Now, there's some students who are learning with me today in the live stream or in Zoom or maybe watching this on the replay that have been learning with me regularly for a long-term period of time. And this is maybe the point where you need to actually start focusing on these closely. So depending on where you are in your practice and you will know where you are in your practice, you can approach this class in either way. as general understanding to get familiar and start getting acquainted with these 10 fetters or if you've been practicing for a while and you feel like it's time for you to start focusing on some of these this will be a great class for you to go into detail with that so once again thank you all for joining i appreciate you all being here let's go into discussing the 10 fetters and helping you guys to understand what these individual fetters are so these 10 fetters are organized into the lower fetters and the higher fetters What a fetter is, is it's like a shackle that's around your ankle with a chain and a ball attached to it. That's what a fetter is. It's keeping you trapped in the unenlightened state. And as long as these fetters or these taints or these pollutions, we also call them defilements of the mind. As long as these 10 pollutions are in the mind, then the mind is going to continue to experience discontentedness. It's going to be trapped in this unenlightened state and there's going to be continuous rebirth because of that. But that's neither here nor there. That's something to approach later when you look at the cycle of rebirth. But once you eliminate these ten fetters, not only have you eliminated the discontentedness in the mind, you eliminate the constant rebirth and needing to come back and experience life over and over and over and over again. So these defilements or these pollutions, these taints, these fetters that are keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state, you need to first understand what they are through learning intellectually. Then you need to reflect on this and kind of understand what they are and how they're causing you problems. Then ultimately, you will end up practicing certain aspects of the practice in order to eliminate them from the mind. And then by understanding these, you'll be more able to readily apply the solutions. So this first fetter of personal existence view, this is where the mind misunderstands, has the false perception or the misperception, the unknowing of true reality. It has this confusion about the body and the mind. And it thinks that this body and mind is who you are as a person. And when you are holding on and clinging to this self-image or this self-identity in the mind, thinking that this is who you are, Now you're opening yourself up for discontentedness, because if you hear agreeable things about your self-image, then you're going to potentially experience these conditioned, pleasant feelings where the mind now has this happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, because somebody said, oh, wow, you look so handsome in white clothes. It brings out the color of your eyes. You look so handsome. Well, if you allow that to obsess the mind and now you get these pleasant feelings, it's only a matter of time because of impermanence that someone's going to come along and say something diminishing and disparaging. Like, why are you wearing those white clothes? You're so stupid. You know, you're going to go out in the yard and you're going to get dirty. You're going to ride your motorbike. And, you know, it's just a waste to, to wear white clothes. So, it's only a matter of time because of impermanence that somebody's going to say something disparaging about the self image. And now the mind's going to experience painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, or some other discontent feeling that's painful. So, what you're doing as part of this path is you're starting to realize and i'll help you to do that as part of our class today is that this body is not who you are as a person there is a physical body here but it's not you it's not who you are you start disassociating with this body as being who you are but you still maintain it you still take care of it because that's wise you just choose to no longer cling to it and think that this self-image is who you are And then the same thing with the mind, there's a certain self-identity in the mind that the unenlightened mind carries around. Like I am American, or I am Italian, or I am a Brit, or I am an Australian or Aussie, right? Or I am a police officer, I am a food server, I am a nurse, I am a doctor, I am a lawyer. All of this I am, I am, I am. And as long as that I am is in there, then once again when you hear agreeable things there's pleasant feelings and when you hear disagreeable things there's going to be these painful feelings so if this mind identifies with i am a buddhist teacher then when i hear people say all buddhist teachers are so lovely they're so kind they're so friendly oh they just dedicate their time they practice generosity to share these teachings with people oh they're so great Well, if you identify with I am a Buddhist teacher, now they're talking about me. And now the mind has the tendency to become obsessed with this. And then now there's going to be these pleasant feelings that come into the mind. But then it's only a matter of time before someone says all Buddhist teachers are leading people to hell. How dare they, right? They're going to say all this diminishing or degrading things about Buddhist teachers. And if I am a Buddhist teacher, now when you hear that, then there's going to be painful feelings so you need to disassociate with this realize that okay i'm performing the role as a buddhist teacher i'm providing support and i'm doing activities that is of a buddhist teacher of what other people might consider to be a buddhist teacher but you can disassociate in the mind that i am a buddhist teacher so i am not a buddhist teacher i choose to share the teachings of the buddha but i don't identify as i am a buddhist teacher the same thing with I am an American. I know that this body was born in America, but I don't identify as I am an American. Because if I did, when people said wonderful things about Americans, then the mind would get pleasant feelings. But then when people disparage and degrade Americans, if I am American, then the mind would experience these painful feelings as a result. The other things that you might experience as a result of this personal existence view. And as I'm talking, you can think about situations that you've might been in like this, where maybe you have had a certain job or occupation. And when you had that certain occupation, you started seeing that as being who you are as a person. And then when you got laid off or the company went out of business or you got fired or something like that, you might have felt like a piece of you was missing. And now you became discontent because you don't feel like you identify with you know what you're doing anymore. This job is now gone and you feel like a part of you is gone or missing. Or if you've retired and now you are no longer performing that job. Maybe you did a job for 10 years or 20 or 30 or 40 years and now Now when you retire, you feel like a part of you is missing, like you don't even know who you are anymore because you maybe struggled through this retirement. Or maybe you know people that have experienced that, where they've struggled in retirement because they are no longer performing that job anymore, and it might have taken them a couple of years to let go of, I am a police officer, I am a doctor, or one of these other occupations. If you've been in a relationship before of I am a boyfriend or I am a girlfriend or I am a husband, I am a wife, and then when you separated, now the mind might have had this longing and yearning to hurry up and get back into another relationship because you didn't feel comfortable being single because you identified with being a boyfriend, a girlfriend, husband, a wife, or some other relationship like that, and you were trying to hurry up and get back into that role with Another person. Maybe you made an unwise decision as part of that. So, this is some of the challenges that are experiencing as long as this personal existence view is in the mind and you think that this is who you are. You can even get to the point where you might think, I don't even know who I am anymore. And I need to go on this journey to find myself. Sometimes people do that, they come to Thailand in order to find themselves but they never actually find themselves because there is no self. They might find new hobbies, a new occupation. They might find new friends, new interests or things like this, but those things aren't who you are as a person. And it's only a matter of time before all those things change. And now the mind is uncomfortable when it has this pollution of personal existence view. So you can't find the self because there is no self there. So the Buddha provides us the teaching of the universal truth of non-self to help us understand that this body and this mind isn't who we are as a person. And we can get liberated from clinging on to this to the point where if somebody says something agreeable about our image or our identity that was maybe there at one time, We no longer experience those conditioned, pleasant feelings. Our mind is already joyful before this person even says that. And we might say, thank you. I appreciate your kind words or whatever you might say to that person. But then when somebody comes along and says something degrading and disparaging, You don't feel any painful feelings in that situation. You don't feel any anger, hostility, or aggression, or any sadness, or anything like that, because you no longer identify with these things. You've let those go. So, this is what you can get to when you understand the universal truth of non self and you practice the teachings in detail of how to actually eliminate this. There's a few things that. Uh, you're gonna learn as part of chapter 16. In fact, there's quite a few things there in chapter 16 when we get to it that I'm gonna go in detail explaining exactly what you can do in order to eliminate the personal existence view. But because I've taught you guys about learning, reflecting, and practicing, now that I've shared this learning with you, let's reflect on this a little bit. You can actually discern right now that there is no self. And the way that you can do that is i can ask you where are you and you can take your finger and you can point some people might point here or might point here if you point to to your chest and say i am right here look down and what you see is you see a shirt you actually don't see you the shirt is not you that's just a shirt so if we get rid of the shirt and say where are you and then you point well that's just skin so let's get rid of the skin you know that's not you where, where are you and then we point again well that's just bone and that's just muscle tissue and fluid and organs those things aren't you that's not who you are but the mind falsely thinks that this is you and that's the challenge in the unenlightened mind and that's why it's holding on and clinging to this body and or this mind thinking that this is you and that's why it's open to getting shaken up in these situations where there's agreeable or disagreeable speech related to this body and this mind so as you learn the universal truth of non-self and in chapter 16 you'll see a detailed list of things that i share about how to eradicate this from the mind just a few things that we can talk about right now, because in chapter 16, I'll go into it in more detail, is you can start disassociating with this I am. So wherever you will typically say, you know, I am a Buddhist teacher or I am American, you can start changing the way you think about how you relate to the world. You might think about, you know, I provide the services of a lawyer or I perform the function of a lawyer or I perform the occupation of a lawyer or something like this or you might say that yes and you understand that this body was born in America not telling you how to talk to people or the way you should talk with people but there needs to be this kind of rewiring of the mind where the mind is no longer holding on and clinging to this body and this mind. And if you start disassociating with this body and mind as being who you are through your speech, now the mind can kind of be retrained. So instead of, I'm going to my house, or this is my car, or my job, or my phone, you can think of, can you hand me the phone, instead of, can you hand me my phone, or instead of, I'm going to my car, you can think of I'm going to the car or instead of I'm going to my house, right? I'm going to the place where I live, right? So you you can kind of disassociate with these words that we use because this is part of the challenge in having this pollution of personal existence view is that the language that we speak is kind of ill-equipped to really describe true reality. Here in Thailand, when you speak in Thai and you refer to yourself, you actually use your name. You would say, David would like something to eat. Instead of saying, I would like something to eat, you use your actual name. and. In the Thai language, it's more accustomed to practicing in this way, but the English language isn't really set up that way. We're not taught that way because it's not really part of our culture. So we need to kind of shift and adjust the way that we talk for a while, maybe six months or a year. And then sometimes it's just easier when I'm introducing my son to say, this is my son, Bailan, right? Rather than say, this is the being that I contributed sperm to 10 years ago, right? That would be kind of silly to say something like that when I'm introducing him to somebody. So what you do is you kind of, 90% of the time or so, you kind of can shift and adjust your wording and your language, but then as your mind becomes more and more accustomed to this and your mind disassociates with this body and mind as being who you are, then it might just be easier in some situations to say, oh, this is my son, right? So we'll talk about this in more detail when we get to chapter 16, but just have some general awareness of this now. And for anybody who feels like it's time for them to start focusing on eliminating personal existence view, I would suggest that you schedule some time to meet with me either in Zoom or if you're here in Chiang Mai to meet in person because it will help you to talk about this and for me to ask you some questions and discuss it and be sure you fully understand it as you embark on the journey of eliminating personal existence view. The second fetter is called doubt. What doubt is, is having doubt about the Buddha, the teachings, the community that you're part of, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. If you have doubt about these things, it's going to hinder you from actually getting to enlightenment. But the way that you transform doubt is not by blind belief or just faith. You don't just say, okay, I don't doubt anything. Instead, you can actually harness this doubt because everybody pretty much has doubt when they first come to this path. You know, did the Buddha really exist? Do his teachings really lead to enlightenment? Does enlightenment even exist? You know, who is this community that I'm part of? You know, do these people really care? Are they really interested in helping me? You know, who's this teacher, you know, over there in Thailand? You know, what is he doing? Wearing all white, shaving his head. You know, what's he doing? You know, is he really a legitimate teacher? And you might doubt your ability of whether you have the ability to learn and practice and progress. To enlightenment. So you can actually have doubt when you first start and you can harness this because you can potentially have this be an inquisitive doubt where you're very inquisitive about the Buddha's teachings and you turn it into an interest to investigate his teachings rather than just have blind belief or faith or just say, okay, I understand everything, and you know, okay, I'll just have faith in the Buddha that's not what you're interested in that's not how you get rid of this fetter of doubt and this pollution of doubt the way you get rid of it is by investigating his teachings examining them reflecting on them to independently verify them and see that they're truth you practice them and as you're practicing his teachings and you see the condition of your mind gradually improving you'll get to the point where you have no doubt that the Buddha lived and existed because you see that your mind used to get angry in certain situations, and now there's complete peace. Or you're slowly diminishing this to frustration, to irritation, to annoyance, to eventually getting to complete peace. And you know that those things actually used to arise all kinds of anger in your mind before so you'll get to the point where you have complete confidence that the buddha absolutely existed that his teachings are absolutely leading you to enlightenment the mind's not enlightened yet but you'll know that they're beneficial and leading you in the right direction you'll know that this community of people that you're interacting with is caring and encouraging and motivating and interested in seeing you get to enlightenment and by getting to that point you'll have confidence in your teacher that your teacher has guided you to that point And you'll have confidence in your own ability to get to enlightenment because you've seen progress already. You've been coming to classes, you've been reading books, you've been meditating, you've been training your mind, and you see these gradual improvements and you'll know that you have the ability to do this because you see more peacefulness coming into the mind. So that's how you get rid of doubt is you investigate, you reflect, And then you practice the teachings and see this gradual progress as the results start being experienced more and more in the mind. The third one is called wrong behavior and observances. There's two aspects of this. So I'm going to explain it in two different sections. The wrong behavior part, this refers to the Eightfold Path, that moral conduct section that we've talked about, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Because with wrong speech wrong action and wrong livelihood you're going to be causing harm through your moral conduct and this harm is going to be coming back to you and as long as you're doing that then you're not going to be able to get to peaceful and joyful mind because this harm is going to be coming to you from other people so bringing your practice up to practicing right speech right action and right livelihood with right speech there's those four aspects of right speech ensuring that you're not lying, that you're practicing, not slandering, that you're not having harsh speech and that you don't have frivolous speech. That's part of right speech or what we talked about is right communication. And of course, in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to go deeper than that. You're going to need to know the five factors of well-spoken speech, which we're going to be talking about in this program and we have talked about. You're going to need to understand some other aspects around speech. But to get rid of this wrong behavior, you just need to bring your practice up to what is in the eightfold path around speech. Eliminating lying, slander, harsh speech, and frivolous speech. And then the same thing with right action, is eliminating the killing and taking life and not living compassionately for all beings. The stealing, eliminating that, and eliminating sexual misconduct. And then also the livelihood aspect, is getting to the point where your livelihood is purified and you're not performing one of those five trades. So this is how you eliminate wrong behavior, is you deeply understand the moral conduct section and you practice that. And you practice it not as rules, not as forbidden activity or commandments or anything like that, but you see the wisdom in it that if you do practice these things, that it's going to produce better relationships, both personally and professionally for you. And you make wise decisions to practice these and you bring your practice up to this closer and closer. That's how you get rid of wrong behaviors. And you do that for an extended long-term period of time. What wrong observances are is wrong observances are rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. The Buddha actually didn't teach any rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. Even though certain Buddhist places that you go that are calling what they do Buddhist, they might be performing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship and calling it Buddhism. When you look at the Buddhist teachings, he didn't teach any rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship because those things don't lead to enlightenment. Because if you understand the problem, which is that ignorance or the unknowing of true reality, the misunderstanding and confusion of how the world functions, these natural laws of existence, then you understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't going to actually improve that for you. It's not going to give you wisdom because the ultimate goal is to get to more and more wisdom and practice this in daily life. So sprinkling some water on you or tying a string around your wrist or any of these kind of things that you might see in various venues about rites, ritual, ceremonies, and worship, it doesn't actually lead to enlightenment because there's no way for me to sprinkle water on you or anybody else to sprinkle water on you and help you to cultivate wisdom about how to make wise decisions about how to conduct your life and how to train your mind and how to gain the wisdom of impermanence and discontentedness and non-self and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all these other things. So a person who eliminates wrong observances will deeply understand that it's ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that is keeping the mind in that unenlightened state and it's wisdom that's going to transform that. And the only way you get to that is by investigating the teachings, by reflecting on them and independently verifying them, and then practicing them to transform the mind through your practice. So they would have eliminated rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. That doesn't mean you can't do those things. You Just your mind needs to understand. understand that they don't lead to any kind of wisdom. So if you're part of a church or something like this, and you enjoy going to sing, and you feel like you're praising God, there's some people who enjoy doing this. You can do that. You might enjoy singing and participating, being part of a community, being in harmony with each other, but you know that what you're doing is you're arising this gratitude or this appreciation, and you're looking to live harmoniously with other beings but that by itself, the singing and all of that stuff, it's not going to produce wisdom in the mind. So there's things like this that you might do as part of traditions that you've learned in the past, but your mind needs to understand what the real goal is, is to get to wisdom and make wiser decisions. That's what's actually gonna lead to your enlightenment. The fourth fetter is called central desire. Central desire is how the mind Is longing and yearning through the sense bases for pleasant feelings so the eyes the ears the nose the tongue the bodily contact in the mind itself we call these the six sense bases the mind is longing for agreeable contact through the six sense bases the eyes take in certain forms that you see in the mind wants only agreeable things you only want to see agreeable things and when you see agreeable things you get pleasant feelings but when you see disagreeable things things that you disagree with then the mind's going to get discontent with anger sadness frustration and others this is because of the central desire the longing and yearning for pleasurable contact disagreeable contact through the eyes And it's the same thing through the ears. If you hear music that you agree with and you think is so wonderful, you feel so great when you hear that music, but somebody pulls up to you in a car with music that you don't like, and now you might get angry or frustrated or irritated, not understanding that this music is impermanent and you're not going to hear this music permanently. There's no reason to get frustrated by that. Right? So there's things that you hear, you might hear arguing or yelling or baby crying or something like this, and maybe the mind gets irritated or frustrated or some other discontent feeling. This is because of the central desire where the mind is longing through the ears to hear only agreeable things. And when you hear agreeable things, there's these pleasant feelings. When you hear disagreeable things, there's these painful feelings. And the same thing is happening with the nose. There are certain odors that the mind wants that are agreeable and certain things that are disagreeable. Same thing with the tongue. There are certain flavors that are agreeable and disagreeable. Same thing with the body. There are certain Physical objects that are agreeable and disagreeable. If you have a nice fabric on, or if your partner comes and holds your hand, or if you sit in your favorite chair, these are all agreeable to you, right? But if you're walking down the street and somebody bumps into you and bumps your shoulder, maybe that's disagreeable to you, and now you get frustrated or angry about that. Or if somebody steps on your foot, right? Maybe they step on your foot uh, as you're walking down the street and now this is disagreeable and you maybe get frustrated or irritated. This is all because of central desire. And then there's the mind itself, where the mind might be thinking about things in the past, certain pleasurable things, maybe relationships or experiences that you've had and you're kind of longing and yearning for those pleasurable things to happen again. Or there are certain painful things, experiences that you had in the past that the mind is holding on to. And when it thinks about those things in the present moment, the mind becomes discontent because of things that are happening in the past or happened in the past. And the same thing about the future. The mind might have this longing and yearning about pleasurable things that happen in the future. Or it might be having certain impressions that uh, painful things and You know, disagreeable things are going to happen in the future. And now in the present moment, the mind becomes discontent because of this past and because of this future. And now the mind is having this longing and yearning. It's through these sense bases of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact in the mind. And as long as this pollution of central desire is in the mind, it's going to keep getting shaken up because it can't permanently get things that are agreeable. Because of the universal truth of impermanence, it's only a matter of time before something disagreeable comes along. You can't control the world to only get agreeable things that you agree with. So that person coming up alongside of you at the traffic light with music that you don't like well, maybe the way you might think about that is that you don't prefer that kind of music, but you understand it's temporary and it's only a matter of time before they go racing off and you don't hear that music anymore. So no big deal, no reason for the mind to get frustrated. But there are specific things that you're doing here in order to eliminate central desire because What the mind does when it has central desire is it tends to be very selfish. It tends to hold on to things because it's craving this permanence. So it tends to hold on to things craving permanence. And as long as it's doing that, it's going to continue to have this central desire and it's going to continue to get shaken up. So we use breathing mindfulness meditation in order to train the mind to let go so when the mind moves off the breath you're training the mind to let that go and come back to the breath so over multiple sessions and multiple times within one session, whenever the mind moves off the breath, you're letting it go, letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. You're exercising the mind, getting it used to just letting go, and no longer longing and yearning through the sense bases and craving for the objects of its affection. Instead, when the mind moves off the breath, You just let it go and come back. You let it go and you come back. So now when you're in the mall and you see those pairs of shoes that, oh my goodness, they've got some beautiful shoes sitting in that store. I just need to get those shoes. But you've got 30 pairs at home already. How many pairs can you wear in one time? Do you really need to go get that new pair of shoes? And is it really going to provide any lasting satisfaction? So where you see the mind longing and yearning like that, you can cut it off and let it go. If you've been training the mind in breathing mindfulness meditation, you can cut it off and let it go and bring the mind back. You no longer allow it to chase after the objects of its affection. When these other shoes get old and you no longer need them or you give them away or what have you, then maybe you buy a pair of shoes because it's very expensive to chase after our wants instead of just fulfilling our needs. And there's other things like this that the mind's going to be longing and yearning for. And where you see that, if you've been exercising the mind and breathing mindfulness meditation, you can cut those off and let them go. And then eventually you'll get to the point where the mind no longer is longing and yearning through these sense bases. And the other generalized training that we use is generosity. Because the mind is becoming selfish with this central desire, and it tends to hold on to our money and our possessions and our relationships and all these different things that we're holding on to, we practice generosity where we're giving and we're sharing more than is strictly required in any one given situation. And by practicing generosity, we train the mind to let go. So we practice generosity with all the people around us and ensuring that, you know, we're sharing our time, effort, energy, and resources. And sometimes when people learn with a teacher, they might decide to offer donations to the temple or to the teacher and things like this. This is the way that we train the mind in order to let go and not hold on to things very tightly. And this is generosity, is helping the mind to gradually let go. You can do things as simple as you're walking into a store And rather than just walk through the door and and go into the store, you notice someone's behind you. You can hold the door and and let those people in. Or if you see somebody drop something, you can bend down and pick it up and say, sir or ma'am, you you dropped this. This is yours, right? You can do these kind of things, which is sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources more than is strictly required in any one given situation. And you can cultivate this mind of generosity. Where you're willing to give and share because an enlightened being isn't going to be selfish. We need to eliminate this stain of selfishness. And this helps the mind to let go of central desire. Then the fifth fetter is essentially a result of the fourth fetter that as long as their central desire where the mind's chasing after the objects of its affection if it gets what it wants it gets pleasant feelings but if it doesn't get what it wants it will tend to get these painful feelings and there is where anger might arise or hatred or this ill will this aggression this resentment this frustration irritation annoyance these lesser versions of this so when the mind becomes bitter and hostile and aggressive because of this ill will, once again, people aren't going to be interested in being around and they're going to leave out of your life because of this. So if, as long as you have this ill will in the mind, then it's going to cause you difficulties in your personal and professional relationships. So we need to not only eliminate the central desire where the mind's chasing and wanting things to be a certain way, and then when it doesn't get those objects of your affection, then The anger arises. Not only do we need to eliminate the central desire, but we need to eliminate the ill will that anger, hatred, and ill will, the bitterness, hostility, and resentment. And the way that we do that is with loving kindness meditation. Loving kindness meditation is what I'm going to be teaching on Wednesday. We're going to be doing a four part series where I'm going to help you understand how to train the mind through loving kindness meditation. And what you're essentially doing is you're rewiring the mind through the meditation, but then you're also practicing loving-kindness in daily life through your intentions, your speech, your actions. You're ensuring that you're not causing harm through any of the ways that you interact in the world. And you might have seen or you might have remembered as part of right intention, right speech, right action, the Buddha is teaching about how to practice those in such a way that doesn't include harm or ill will, or things like this, and practicing with a mind of loving kindness, where we can go out into the world and we can be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all those around us. And it just takes time to gradually train the mind and bring it up closer and closer to this enlightened mental state where there's no more ill will in the mind, and now you can function that way through all your various relationships, whether it's your life partner, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, that instead of being harsh and bitter and resentful towards them, that you can transform your mind with loving kindness meditation. And now when you're around those people, now you can function in a more loving and kind way. Because what the mind does as we age is we take on this ill will. When we were born, we didn't have ill will. We didn't come out of our mom's stomach and go to the nursery at the hospital hating on other babies, right? We didn't do that. Instead, as we aged, we had certain cravings, right? We wanted mom's milk or a bottle, or we wanted a toy, or we wanted a chocolate bar. And if we got what we wanted, we got pleasant feelings. And if we didn't get what we wanted, we got these painful feelings. And then we falsely attributed those painful feelings to our parents or to whoever was around us that you won't give me that toy, or you won't give me that chocolate. And now there's this anger and hostility that comes up in the mind. And then we form this mental object of ill will. And this gets more and more deeply rooted in the mind as we age and we have various experiences in different relationships and different jobs and different interactions that we have We have these pleasant feelings. If we don't get the objects of our affection, then we get those painful feelings. And then we start forming this anger, hatred, ill will, this resentment, this bitterness. So when we practice loving kindness meditation, it starts breaking this up and it starts rewiring the mind. Because now, in the unenlightened state, if we don't get what we want, we might go down this path. This well-beaten path of anger, hostility, and aggression, this ill will, because that's a well-worn path, and it's so easy for our mind to slip down that path. And the thing is, is that we know where that path leads. It leads to harshness. It leads to uh, broken relationships. It leads to difficulties in our life. But when we don't have the wisdom to understand that, we just keep going down that path we've beat down that path very well. It's got a well-worn path in some cases. The grass is all worn out. It's just dirt. We've knocked back the sticker bushes and everything else. But when we do loving-kindness meditation and we're practicing loving-kindness meditation, we're essentially rewiring the mind. That now when we don't get the objects of our affection, now we realize that any painful feelings that are coming up Those are being caused by our own mind. It's not being caused by the other person. And going down this path of ill will isn't what we're interested in. We're interested in going down this other path that we now need to create. We need to get out our machete. We need to knock down these bushes. We need to get rid of the stickers in the bushes. And we need to knock this path down. And it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a struggle in some cases because your mind's so used to going down this well-beaten path. And it's so easy for the mind to go down that path. But we know where that path leads. And we're not interested in doing that anymore. So we've got to walk towards the struggle and get into these stickers and we need to knock these bushes down and make this path a well-worn path. And over time, this old path will get overgrown again and the mind won't be interested in going down there anymore. And it's got this other new path that it's opened up in the mind by rewiring the mind through meditation and through our daily actions, our daily speech, and our daily intentions that we now, when somebody does something that we disagree with, We just understand that that's impermanence, that we can't permanently agree with everything that each person does. So therefore, when somebody does something we disagree with, We just understand that that's impermanence and there's no need to get frustrated and angry and irritated about it. There's no reason to get hostile and aggressive towards this person. So let's go down this path of loving kindness where we're polite, kind, friendly and respectful to people. And the Buddha teaches us how to do that through right intention, right speech and right action. Now this path, we go down this path so frequently that the mind just is always going down that path. This other path is so overgrown, we don't even look down that path anymore. But again, this is a gradual progression that takes us in that direction. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about the lower fetters before we talk about the higher fetters. You can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like.
2: I don't see any questions at this time, teacher David.
1: Okay. So let's move into the higher fetters so that you understand what these are. The higher fetters, the number six and seven are actually very similar. So I'm going to describe these together. What desire for form is, is desire for form is having a craving, a longing for existence in the human realm or the animal realm. This is the form realms. There's physical form. The body has physical form in the human realm and in the animal realm. Number seven is desire for formless. This is desire to be born into either hell, afflicted spirits, or the heavenly realm. There's individuals who crave this, who long for this, that they're interested in being born into these realms. And you might think that the goal is to die in this life and go to heaven and be there forever, and you might have a craving for that. So by the time you need to get rid of this, you need to eliminate Holding on and desiring to exist in this world in one of these five realms, whether it's the hell realm, the animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm, the human realm or the heavenly realm, not interested in being in any of those realms. So you're not craving for existence, but you're also not craving for non-existence either where you wanna potentially commit suicide or you would like to die, right? Instead, you would like to practice this middle way where you realize right now you're in the human form and the goal is to train the mind and get to enlightenment and purifying the mind and experience this enlightened mental state. But as long as there's this craving, this longing, this yearning, this holding on to this world, then the mind can't be content because it's always gonna want something that it doesn't have. By the time somebody eliminates desire for form and desire for formless they will have eliminated any fear of death an enlightened being isn't going to fear death because they know that they've trained their mind their mind is completely peaceful and joyful there's not going to be this holding on to material possessions in this world Thinking that, you know, I got to hold on to all these things and therefore I'm afraid to die. I don't want to let all these things go that exist in this world, like relationships and material possessions. And you're also not worried about what's going to happen next after you die. So in the unenlightened state, we sometimes fear death and we are afraid of what's going to be next after this or we're holding on to this material world so tightly that we're not interested in letting it go. So you will need to get to the point where you don't have a fear of death and you're no longer having this desire for form, or formless existence. And there's other teachings to help you do this about reflecting on death and things like this that I will share at different times. But just doing the breathing mindfulness meditation and the generosity is helping you to eliminate this in general. But there's very specific things that you can do. So when you get to this point, there's classes that I've taught where I teach you how to reflect on death and kind of confront death on your terms because when death sneaks up on you then we're kind of shocked by that impermanence but when you can confront death on your terms through reflection of death then you'll see that the mind can become quite content and understanding that yeah this existence is not permanent there's one thing that we're all required to do and that's die everything else is not required everything that we do is optional every single thing going to work taking care of our children, our life partners, cleaning our house, taking a shower, all of these things, brushing our teeth, they're all optional. We choose to do these things mostly, but they're all optional. The only thing we're actually required to do and we can't escape from, at least in the unenlightened state, is death. Once you get to enlightenment, you've escaped death. You'll no longer experience death anymore. This is called the deathless. So there's Ways to train the mind to confront death so that you can get comfortable with it and just know that it's going to occur and it won't shake you up thinking about your own death and you won't worry about what's next. The eighth fetter is called conceit. Conceit is arrogance, pride, judging, judging others, measuring and comparing who is superior and inferior. This is part of the ego. So as long as there's conceit in the mind where you wanna put yourself above people or below people, the mind is shaken up. Because as long as you put yourself above someone and you talk down to them, they're not gonna like that and people are gonna exit out of your life. But if you put yourself below people, maybe like a celebrity or someone who's famous, if you're around somebody that you really admire, you're gonna be shaken up by that. And now when you're shaken up by that, your mind is uncalm, it's unsteady. You're gonna talk in ways that maybe you would rather not speak about and, and use those kind of words or language, and your mind's just gonna be shaken up, making unwise decisions. And as long as you're judging people of who's above you and who's below you, your mind can't be at ease and it can't be peaceful because we you enter into a room, you have to figure out who's above you and who's below you. And now your mind can't be at ease because you talk to people who are below you in one way, and you talk to people who are above you in a different way. And your mind can't just practice right speech because it's constantly trying to figure out who's above you and who's below you. Where this is coming from is this is coming from our countless animal existences in the past. Because when we were animals we needed a pecking order that was our survival we wouldn't have been able to survive otherwise when we were a pack of wolves we needed the alpha male and alpha female to teach us how to hunt And they needed to breed and create more wolves so that we can get stronger and stronger as a pack. When we were elephants, we had the matriarch of our herd that showed us where the watering holes were and took us around and showed us where the food was. And we needed this. We needed this matriarch of our elephant herd. So we needed to know who is the the matriarch, who's above us, so we can follow her. But in the human realm, we don't need that. We don't need this above and below and as long as we keep doing that in the mind we're going to keep judging others we're going to look down on them we're going to look up to people and be very shaken up or uncommon we're around them so we can get to the point where we no longer do this and that we can be at ease and we can be peaceful and joyful not trying to constantly figure out who's above us and who's below us this is where you eliminate the ego The word ego didn't exist during the lifetime of the buddha so he actually talked about what we refer to as the ego as personal existence view that first fetter and here the eighth fetter conceit these two things combined is what we refer to as the ego in chapter 16 of the first book i talk about both of these in detail because that chapter is all about dissolving the ego and it helps to understand them as two separate things even though we talk about it as the ego It's important to understand it as personal existence view and conceit because these two pollutions of mind are actually motivating unskillful conduct and it's motivating unwholesome results differently because of their two different pollutions. But by the time you eliminate personal existence view and conceit, you fully eliminated the ego. And that's what you would like to ultimately get to in order to experience enlightenment. As long as the ego is in the mind, then the mind is not enlightened. So if somebody walks around thinking, I am enlightened, I'm so enlightened, look at me, you know, professing to people that they're enlightened, that's a very good indication that they're not yet enlightened. Because an enlightened being isn't going to have that arrogance and pride. They're not going to be projecting to people that they're so enlightened and, you know, looking for admiration from other people. Instead, they're going to be humble. They're going to be peaceful. They're going to be joyful and content, and their mind's going to be so peaceful and joyful, they're not going to have to go around and convince people that they're enlightened because they don't have a craving, a desire, a longing, yearning for people to know that they are enlightened. So they're just going to go about their day being peaceful and joyful. So this is where the ego gets completely eliminated and dissolved. And oh, by the way, the conceit, I will talk about it as part of chapter 16 because there's a lot of details about how to actually eliminate it. But for now, what you can do is wherever you see this arrogance and pride, this measuring and comparing, this judging arising in the mind, is you can try to cut that off and let it go and be like, no, I'm not going to let the mind do that. Where you observe that you're trying to measure and compare yourself or judge people or look down on people or look up to people, cut that off and let it go so that the mind gets used to no longer doing that. Because it's the same thing as it goes down this path of arrogance and pride and this conceit and it's easy to go down that path and you're trying to no longer do that and rewire the mind and make this new path where you're now humble right so where you see this conceit arising redirect the mind or cut it off and let it go and don't allow the mind to dwell in those conceited thoughts number nine restlessness restlessness is confusion or distraction, worried mind, an overactive mind, a restless state of mind, anxiety. It's the exact opposite of singleness of mind. This is where the mind is overactive. If your mind is restless, you might find it difficult to just sit in a chair and just look at the wall. You might be utterly bored out of your mind just sitting somewhere, like at a DMV, getting your driver's license, or at an airport, or at a train station or a bus stop. You might just be bored out of your mind because the mind is so restless. As it wants to be constantly stimulated, it has this restlessness in the mind. You might even bob your knee Or you might take your fingers and you know tap on the table like you know this is the mind being overactive and now it's coming through the body the body is the employee the mind is the boss so the body is just following whatever is going on in the mind so if your mind is overactive the body is going to show that through tapping or through bobbing your knee and things like this so the way that you eliminate restlessness is you arise equanimity which is calmness and composure, even in difficult situations. And by arising this equanimity, then your mind becomes more focused and more concentrated. And you're working on that in breathing mindfulness meditation, to just sit in meditation or lie or stand or walk, focusing on the breath and just being content and being peaceful and joyful with just focusing on the breath, that's all you need. So when you go out in the world and you get a piece of chocolate cake or you spend time with your family or friends or, you know, you listen to some music that you like. Wow, life is wonderful. It's so enjoyable. If you can train your mind to be peaceful, just focusing on the breath and that's all you need to be peaceful and content and joyful. Wow. All this other stuff is just wonderful. But when we have that central desire in there, the grass is always greener on the other side and we always want something that we don't have and the mind becomes restless. It becomes overactive and anxious. So by arising this calmness and composure, now the mind can bring forth its wisdom in daily life and make wise decisions about anything that you choose to be involved in. And you can bring forth the full practice of the Eightfold Path of practicing all those individual steps and then you will actually have more fulfilling personal and professional relationships because your mind's not constantly wanting something that it doesn't have and then the fetter of all fetters which is the 10th fetter which is ignorance this is the last fetter for a reason because this is what allows all the other fetters to exist in the mind which is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality the mind is unknowing of these natural laws of existence it's unknowing of these ten fetters it's unknowing of the four noble truths the eightfold path the five precepts meditation you'll learn about the brahma the seven factors of enlightenment and so many other teaching that you're going to learn as part of this program and others where The mind is just unknowing of these things because we didn't grow up with these teachings, so we don't know these. Here in Thailand, the children learn them growing up, so this is one of the reasons why people call Thailand the land of smiles, and it's very peaceful here because people are practicing these teachings. Not everybody is enlightened, but they're practicing these teachings fairly closely. So this ignorance or unknowing of true reality is just you don't know what you don't know the mind is lacking wisdom and it's only when you learn reflect and practice that you independently verify the teachings and you see the truth for yourself to acquire this wisdom that you now antidote the mind so there's a certain intellectual activity that's involved to eliminate ignorance that you're investigating the teachings and you're starting to reflect on them but if all you did was understood the teachings intellectually the ignorance hasn't been eradicated yet. The way that you fully eradicate ignorance is you move the teachings into practice where you don't just understand right speech intellectually, but you actually practice right speech. You don't just understand the five precepts intellectually, but you practice them. You don't just understand things like right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, but you practice them in daily life as part of your life practice. And as you move these teachings into your practice, that's where ignorance fully gets eradicated. So there's things like the three universal truths the four noble truths the eightfold path the five precepts the natural law of gamma and other teachings that you need to learn that will help you to eradicate this ignorance first there's this intellectual activity of coming to classes and reading books and getting personal help with your teacher and so forth there's the reflection to independently verify it. And then there's moving it into practice. And then as you move it into practice, you might have certain challenges or struggles as you're doing that. And you need to come back and start to learn some more. You need to ask questions. You need to Have personal guidance. You need to read the book and consult the book. And now you go through that reflection again. And now you move back to practice and you start practicing this teaching. And then you fall down, you make a mistake, you trip over your feet, you say the wrong thing, you get angry, you get frustrated. And then you come back and you start learning some more and you move through this gradually, slowly but surely. You gradually learn, you gradually practice, and you gradually see this progress as the ignorance is diminishing more and more the wisdom is going up and now you're transforming the mind getting rid of all these individual fetters and as you're eliminating each of these fetters then the mind is moving through the four stages of enlightenment which we'll talk about next but let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on any of the higher fetters you can put those into facebook youtube or zoom or you can raise your hand and zoom and ask any questions that you like
2: thank you sir i don't see any questions at this time. But I do have a question um, about sensual desire for a personal situation. I noticed that when my younger children are arguing with one another, that um, is displeasing um, to me. So there's a tendency to want to jump in right away and solve the problem and educate and teach and Um, maybe preach a little bit instead of um, maybe what might be better to stand back and let them try to work it out how they may just like sit back and watch and see what happens do you have any guidance on that
1: yeah that's one approach that you can do is you can sit back and just see what happens right but if you know fists are being thrown or vases are being thrown or lamps are being tossed and you know you'd probably like to step in before that occurs but yeah you can sit back and you can watch that's one option you can also say okay pause i would like you guys to pause hold on a second right you're not interested in being harsh and aggressive and hostile and bitter because that's just going to come back to you so you can step in and say hey time out guys step step back step back and if they're angry and they're hostile that's not the time to solve this But you might send them in different directions and you say, hey, I would like you guys to realize that this arguing isn't going to help anything. I would like you guys to go calm down. And after you calm down, let's come back together and I would like you guys to talk about this and sort this out. And I'm not interested in you guys talking about what the other person did to make you angry because we know that that's not true. I would like you guys to talk about individually, what did you do to cause this situation? Not what did the other person do? I would like you to come back to me and talk about what it is that you did to create this situation so putting them kind of in different places and having them go sit and cool off and think about what it is that they did that created this and then when they come back together you can talk about it with them and you can help them come to some solutions because they may not have the solutions because i know your children are fairly young that you might need to just have them talk about identifying the areas that they were challenged in and if they're not seeing all the problems Uh, all the challenges that's where you can step in after they've talked about their issues you can step in well have you considered this or have you thought about this Or did you notice that you were this way? Or did you notice you were talking aggressive and harsh? You can use the Eightfold Path as a way to guide them. Did you notice you weren't speaking at the right time? Did you notice you weren't speaking true or gentle or beneficial or the mind of loving kindness? So you point these things out to them if they're not seeing them themselves. But first you would like to listen to them about what it is that they feel that they did that contributed to the situation. And then when you listen to them then you can point out the areas that they don't see and then you can help them come up with solutions about how to improve their practice thus what you're doing for them in that situation is you're helping them get wisdom because the whole reason why two people sit there and argue and yell at each other is because of these ten fetters it's the ten fetters and they're lacking wisdom they have this unknowing of true reality so what you're doing as a parent is you're stepping in getting them to a point where they can calm their mind down and help them do some thinking and some reflection about what it is that caused the situation themselves. And then when you're bringing them back together, you're imparting wisdom that helps them to make better choices in the future. All the while knowing that one talk isn't going to do it. Two talks isn't going to do it. Five talks isn't going to do it. It's going to be a gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress but each time you're getting more and more refined in the type of guidance and that you're providing them and they're getting more and more capable of digesting that content and understanding it especially as they age they'll have more capability to understand what it is that you're sharing and then when they understand the wisdom they'll start gradually making wiser and wiser choices about their conduct because they see the benefit in it
2: That's very helpful, sir. Thank you. I think Mm -hmm. the biggest thing that I was missing was the pause. The pause and the ability to calm down before asking questions or preaching and trying to fix things. Thank you, sir.
1: Yeah, remember the right time. That's the very first one for a reason, because if people's minds are angered and hostile and upset, it's the wrong time to be talking. That needs to all calm down before there's any ability for wisdom to come into the mind.
2: Yes. Thank you, sir.
1: Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
2: It doesn't appear there are any other questions at this time.
1: Okay. So let's look at the four stages of enlightenment, because now that you understand the 10 fetters, we can talk about the four stages of enlightenment. There's four individual stages that the mind goes through as it's eliminating these fetters. Remember, we talked about the Eightfold Path and putting that together. That's the very first part of the path. Then you start observing these qualities of mind that come with the jhanas, those four preliminary phases. And then at that point, you start focusing on the fetters. And then as you start eliminating the fetters, the mind starts moving through these stages of enlightenment, starting with stream enter. That's the very first stage of enlightenment. And we call it stream enter because it's just like a log that enters the stream it's only a matter of time before it reaches the ocean. And the same thing is, once you get into that first stage of enlightenment, it's only a matter of time before you get to enlightenment, either in this life or a future life, it's a matter of time that you will get to enlightenment. Then there's once returner. We call this once returner because if you get to this stage of enlightenment and die, you're only gonna end up coming back to the human realm one more time, and from there, you're going to get to enlightenment in that very next rebirth in the human realm. Non-returner is somebody who dies in the third stage, they're gonna be reborn into the heavenly realm, and then they're gonna to get to enlightenment in the heavenly realm. They're not gonna actually come back to the human realm. This is called non-returner, but not everybody in heaven actually gets to enlightenment. Some of those beings, a lot of those beings are reborn into other realms, but a person who's a non-returner, they will get to enlightenment in the heavenly realm and not come back to the human realm. Then there's what's called an arahant. An arahant is an enlightened being. They've eliminated all 10 fetters and they're not going to be reborn anywhere. This person has eliminated discontentedness and they are now enlightened. This is what we call an enlightened being. So let me show you the fetters and how as you're eradicating the fetters and eliminating those, the mind will move through these four stages of enlightenment. When you eliminate the personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances, which is the first, second, and third fetter, now the mind is solidly in the first stage of enlightenment. And this is a key opportunity for the mind to get there because once it's in that first stage of enlightenment, it won't regress backwards. When the mind's in the jhanas, your mind can actually regress from there and go backwards. But once the mind is in the first stage of enlightenment, it can't do that. So, in the jhanas, if you gave up on your meditation practice or you didn't practice any longer, your mind would actually regress. But in the first stage of enlightenment, your mind won't regress from there because you have eliminated personal existence view, you have full confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your teacher, your own ability to get to enlightenment, and you've eliminated wrong behavior and observances. You've done a certain amount of work on the Eightfold Path, and you're seeing significant results at this point. You're seeing a significant diminishing of discontentedness. Your mind's still experiencing discontentedness, But considering where the mind was when you were off the path to enlightenment to when you're in this first stage of enlightenment, significant difference. So from there, the mind can now move to the second stage of enlightenment, which is called once returner. You've already eliminated the first three fetters, but now you just kind of thin out central desire and ill will. Those fetters are still there, but they're just thin. They're not as strong. So if you're noticing like that you don't have as much sex drive anymore, this is because central desire has diminished. Or if you notice that at one time you used to crave eating a lot of ice cream and chocolate and you just don't have that craving anymore, you just eat it every once in a while, this is central desire diminishing. Or if you used to indulge in alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and other things, but now you've kind of diminish that this is central desire diminishing and the same thing with ill will if you're noticing that your anger your bitterness your hostility is diminished over time this is that ill will starting to diminish so as a once returner they would have thinned out central desire and ill will but it's still there so the mind is still experiencing discontentedness as a once returner but you're experiencing a lot less of it because there's less craving and there's less anger or this less ill will. Then there's non-returner. A non-returner has eliminated all the five lower fetters, personal existence view, doubt, wrong behavior and observances, central desire and ill will those are all eliminated from the mind and once again they're experiencing significant benefits they may get discontent once every three months once every six months something along those lines and when it happens that's very minimal it's not very intense at all it's very insignificant and it doesn't last very long it's not very intense and it doesn't last very long by this point you know exactly what's causing it and you're starting to cut it off so easily that's why it's not very intense and it doesn't last and linger for very long at this point in your progress and this part in your practice the mind can become somewhat complacent because you're experiencing such little amount of discontentedness just once every three months or every six months and it's sometimes even just a small little ickiness The mind can actually become quite complacent at this point. You're not as attentive to your practice. You still might be meditating, but in your daily life, when discontentedness arises, you might not be as motivated to cut it off and let it go because it's so insignificant. It's very minimal. It's very minor. So you need to remain dedicated and diligent in this stage of enlightenment or else you won't be able to get to enlightenment itself as an otter hunt because there's going to be this lingering discontentedness even though it's insignificant and very infrequent it's still happening so the mind is not yet enlightened then when you eliminate all the ten fetters the lower fetters and the higher fetters this is where the mind is enlightened there's no more discontentedness whatsoever and there's no more rebirth in the cycle of rebirth this person might be referred to as an or an enlightened being but the way that these four stages of enlightenment are is it's not like a merit badge it's not like somebody comes out and gives you a certificate it's not like you call up your mom and like hey mom I'm a stream enter, would you believe that? You should be so proud of me. It's not this kind of thing. The way that this is set up is this is for your own personal development. This isn't for you to measure and compare other people and try to figure out if you're above them or you're below them, because that's the conceit. That's what you're trying to get rid of, right? Instead, this is for your personal development. You might actually talk to your teacher about these things. You might say, hey, teacher, I think I've eliminated personal existence view. Can you help me to figure out if I've done that or not? You can discuss doubt or wrong behavior and observances and these others. You can tell me, hey, I have doubt. Can you help me to figure out how to eliminate this? Or I think I've eliminated doubt, but I'm not sure. Can you help me figure this out? So these are things you might use to talk to me essentially what you're doing is you're using this to plot your course forward of how to progress towards the enlightened mental state. So that's how you use these, not as a way to measure and compare to other people. So there's stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. Anybody who's gotten to enlightenment is an arahant, including an actual Buddha. A Buddha is an arahant, but they're a unique type of individual the Buddha is not a stage of enlightenment. There's some traditions of Buddhist teachings that say that everybody is a Buddha, but the Buddha didn't say that himself. The Buddha made a clear distinction between what a Buddha is and what an enlightened being is. A Buddha is enlightened, but they've acquired the enlightened mental state in a different way than what an enlightened being would have done. An enlightened being would have had a teacher and guide and helping them along the path along the journey a buddha wouldn't have had a teacher they wouldn't have had anybody to help them they would have gotten to this enlightened mental state on their own without the help of any teachers or guides. Through their own independent journey, their own efforts would have led to their enlightenment. So, Gautama Buddha went out in the forest. He spent time there for many years and he independently discovered the path to enlightenment. He declared the path to enlightenment. He discovered it on his own. That's what the first criteria of what a Buddha is, is that they independently get to enlightenment on their own without any teachers or any guides. Then they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their teachings with others. And during their lifetime, countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they preserve the teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. This is the three criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha is they independently discover the teachings on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. They eliminate those 10 fetters that we just talked about on their own. So all these teachings that I'm sharing with you, these are teachings that the Buddha discovered on his own and we're just getting started, there's more, right? So he discovered all these teachings and he did this work on his own mind. Then he dedicated the rest of his life to sharing these teachings with others and countless people got to enlightenment during his lifetime. Then he preserved the teachings in such a way that countless more people got to enlightenment after his death. Here we are 2,500 years later, and we still have his teachings because they were preserved in such a way that more people could get to enlightenment after his death. This is what makes a Buddha a Buddha. Independently discover the teachings, dedicate their life, countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime, and they preserve the teachings for others to get to enlightenment after their death. We call them fully, perfectly enlightened. And the reason why is because they don't have teachers. They don't have guides. The only thing that they know is the path to enlightenment. By the time they get to enlightenment, their mind only knows the path to enlightenment in terms of the teachings. They know other things, of course, but they only know the path to enlightenment. If an enlightened being gets to enlightenment through the guidance of a teacher, and that teacher is not an actual Buddha, then that person is going to have a certain amount of baggage, a certain amount of residual things that didn't necessarily lead to their enlightenment. They might be practicing 80 or 90% of the teachings that lead to enlightenment, but they still got 10 or 20, maybe even 30% of the things that they're doing didn't actually lead to their enlightenment but they're still practicing those things. That's what an enlightened being would do because they are having this teacher and they might just be practicing some of those things out of respect for their teacher. But a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha doesn't have a teacher. So if they practice something and it doesn't work and it doesn't lead to enlightenment, they're gonna discard it. So by the time that they get to enlightenment, they're perfectly enlightened. All they know is the path to enlightenment. So during the entire rest of their life, they're putting lights down along this path, making it very clear for as many people as possible to actually get to this enlightened mental state. And that's why they can help countless people get to enlightenment because their wisdom is so penetrating. It's so clear. It's so precise. It's so direct. And this is why they're able or one of the reasons why they're able to actually help people to get to enlightenment. There's one other quality of mind that a Buddha actually has that is different than that of an average enlightened being. The average enlightened being that gets to enlightenment, they're going to go off and do things, you know, be a politician, a business owner, whatever it is that they're going to do. They're not going to function the same as a Buddha, but their mind is still experiencing the peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy. The thing that allowed the Buddha to get to enlightenment on his own without the help of any teachers or any guides is that he has an unlimited memory where other beings in the world they have a certain capacity they have a certain limit to their memory it's kind of like a hard drive they might have a one terabyte hard drive and once their hard drive gets full they need to delete old files in order to store new files this is why with your life right now the last five ten years perhaps you have you know really good recall about what you've done in the last five or ten years but when you think about your childhood you kind of have spotty memories you don't have really clear detailed direct memories of your childhood you have just kind of spotty memories that's because you've had to delete those files in order to store these new files but a buddha a person who's going to become a buddha doesn't have this. They have an unlimited capacity to their mind. So they understand their past lives and what they've experienced in their past lives in their current life. They've been accumulating wisdom through multiple lives in their current life. And they can retain all of that wisdom that they acquired over all these multiple lives. And it comes together for them in their last life where they're able to get to enlightenment in that last life on their own without any help of any teachers or guides because they've been accumulating this wisdom and now it becomes beneficial for them to now get to enlightenment in their last life they have the ability to observe the mind of others and they can see these fetters in the mind of their students so a buddha isn't interested in other people knowing that they're a buddha a buddha today wouldn't go around and claim to everyone that they're enlightened and that they're a Buddha. That would be detrimental to a Buddha's ability to help people. Because if everybody knew who the Buddha was, if there was some physical characteristic that everybody knew who the Buddha was, then people would be on their best behavior whenever they're around this person. And that ability to observe their student's mind and actually help them with teachings to eradicate the ten fetters would be useless because people would just be on their best behavior whenever they're around this person. But if nobody knows who the Buddha is, and this person can operate in a way where they're sharing the teachings and helping people get to enlightenment, then yeah, there's gonna be students who come in that have ego. There's gonna be students who gossip and have profanity. There's gonna be students who get angry and hostile and bitter around this person who's in Buddha. And now they can actually see the true nature of this person's mind, and then because of the loving kindness and compassion that a Buddha has, they'll be able to offer them teachings to be able to help them to improve the condition of their mind. And this is why a Buddha isn't interested and going around and telling everybody that they're a buddha instead they're just going to remain humble they're going to remain peaceful they're going to share their teachings without the need of anybody knowing that they're an actual buddha so one of the powers that a buddha has is that they're able to observe the quality of mind of their students and then actually help them to understand what fetters they're struggling with and then how to actually eradicate them A Buddha has a deep practice of their own teachings. They are essentially a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. They're not going to teach right speech and then practice wrong speech. They're not going to teach the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and then practice the opposites of those. Instead, they're gonna be a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings because this is one of the ways that a Buddha teaches. Is yes, they teach through discourses and talking, but they teach a lot better and a lot more through the way that they conduct themselves in the world. And their students can observe that this person is practicing things like, you know, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and all the others. And they can observe how this person interacts in the world, and they can use them essentially as a role model. Even without knowing that that person is a Buddha, a Buddha is going to be able to have students and teach classes and conduct themselves in the world in a way that people are interested to learn with that person. And then the students aren't necessarily going to know that that person is a Buddha. And now as they're learning with that person, they're just using that person as a role model, because that's essentially what you do is if a teacher is teaching right speech, then you would think that they would be practicing right speech. So you're kind of learning from your teacher of how to not only understand right speech through the discourses and the books and things like that, but you should be able to observe that they're practicing these teachings as well. And this is how you learn, not only from a Buddha, but also from other teachers as well. If you weren't learning with a Buddha, you would be able to absorb and experience using this person as a role model through just observing their way that they function in the world and this is why it's utterly important for any teacher of the teachings of the buddha who is guiding people to enlightenment to either be very 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 close to enlightenment or enlightened themselves and this actually will be helpful for the students to be able to observe the conduct of this individual and how they interact in the world and this is how you can learn and the buddha uses that same thing is that they're a living breathing walking example of their teachings so this is everything that i had to share with you guys today i'll just open up to any questions that you guys have related to this topic of the 10 fetters and the four stages of enlightenment, you can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like.
2: Thank you, sir. It appears I missed a question on YouTube. Someone asks, how about exploring or learning deeply, and I'm gonna try to say this word as best as I can, Anathalakana Sutta.
1: I'm not sure what sutta you're referring to there. Not you, Chrissy, but whoever's asking the question. Um, Because when I learned the suttas, I didn't learn them by the name of the sutta. I learned them as the way I present them in this book series and individual pieces. So if you have a reference that you would like to share with me privately, I can look up that sutra and I can help you to understand it if you're having challenges to understand it. But I didn't learn them in terms of the very long discourses and by the name. You can see in the books that I share that I have them uh, separated out so that you can digest smaller pieces rather than maybe five, 10, 20 different topics in one long discourse. Instead, the way that I've separated it out, there might be one or two or three teachings in each individual section that I've laid out into the book series.
2: Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And Joe has his hand raised in Zoom. Let's go to him.
1: Hi, David. Hello, hello. And everyone.
0: I was, my question is, I'm feeling a bit, I guess, confused or maybe overwhelmed
1: at where to start. Like, you know, you have the eight banners the four
0: noble truths, um, the ten letters. Um, so and to deploy to them all at one time seems like a lot, you know, um, I don't know. So I guess is there,
1: I don't know, is there a simpler way or something? one thing to start with like um, yeah that's it it's it's wonderful you're asking this question Joe because I imagine other people are having the same experience as well because you know in four weeks I just went through a lot of content and it's like whoa where do I even start so it's wonderful that you're asking this question. What I suggest you guys do is definitely start with the meditation, that breathing mindfulness meditation, building that up to two or three meditation sessions and gradually building that up. And if you're at 10 minutes a session or five minutes a session or 15 minutes, it's up to you. You know, you just gradually build that up. But just know that you're working towards the two or three sessions a day for 30 minutes or more. And that's gonna maybe take you many months. I know some students have taken three months, six months, a year even to build up to that level of meditation. So work on your meditation and be sure you're getting that underway. And then with the Eightfold Path, understand right view that yes, you understand that yes, you know, you're causing your own discontentedness and you do understand that to a certain degree, because you're in this class and you're interested in learning and you're, you're, you are you're know, like, okay, I need to do the work here. And then start working on building up your intention, your right intention, that renunciation, non-ill will, and the harmlessness. And then move into the moral conduct. This is what the Buddha taught, is to focus on the moral conduct. Because as long as your moral conduct is not in line with the Eightfold Path, you're going to be causing harm, and this is harm that you're going to need to experience, and it's going to come back to you. So clean up your speech, your actions, and your livelihood. That would be a good place to start. As we go in these classes, I'm going to be teaching a new topic every week, and they're in the book and so forth, but don't feel like you need to like turn on these teachings at the snap of a finger. Because like I think Chrissy's taken this program two or three times now you know, Bill, he was here earlier. He might have left because he usually goes to sleep a little bit early. Yeah, he's, he's probably already left. He's been studying with me for probably three or four years already, right? And he's still in this group learning program, still learning and still building up his practice. So each time we cover one of these topics, don't feel like you have to go out and become an expert and practice it perfectly today. Instead, as you go through the Eightfold Path and you go through this group learning program, start observing the things that you need to improve and start working on that, mainly focusing on your meditation practice and improving your moral conduct. Those are the two things at the beginning. There's gonna be more that you're gonna learn in this program, but don't feel like you need to learn it all and retain it all because most people repeat this program multiple times. There's even one student who's taken this program six times, I know of an individual and has read this book you know, she told me uh, 12 times, like eight or 12 times that she's read this book. So just take your time. And each time you go through the program, and you go through the book, you're going to learn more and more and more. And you just kind of dial it in more and more. So if you can work with the meditation and your moral conduct, that would be the way to get started. And then even though you're still learning in the program, don't feel like you need to go out and do these things right away. And you'll see that As we go next week, starting with chapter one, with chapter one, there's nothing that you need to really go out and do. And the same thing with chapter two, there's nothing you need to go out and do. And chapter three, the same thing, there's nothing that you need to go out and do. So now that we've had this teaching, now there's gonna be kind of like a little bit of a lull where you're still learning, there's still things we're gonna be discussing, but they're not gonna be heavy topics like these four classes have been pretty dense material. So the next three classes on Sundays, they're not going to be as dense. And then we're going to teach the Four Noble Truths again. That's chapter four. Then I'm going to teach chapter five again, which is the Eightfold Path. Then we're going to have the sixth chapter, which is really light, very straightforward. There's only one actual teaching as part of that. It's a very short chapter. Then we're going to go into chapter seven, which is the five precepts, which is essentially plugging into the Eightfold Path and just helping you to further understand the Eightfold Path. So over the next seven weeks, it's basically going to be dissecting the things that you've learned in these four classes. It's going to be dissecting it and spreading it out over a longer period of time so don't feel like you have to hurry up and do these things you know real quickly instead just look at it as a as a life practice and you're gradually building this up over time and just focus on the meditation and the moral conduct for now thank you you're welcome
2: it appears that's all the questions we have at this time sir
1: okay well i'll just in class by sharing that next week we're going to be moving into chapter one. So if you would like to read the chapter before class in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, volume one, you can go to the website and download this book. You can take it and go print it, or you can order a printed copy through Amazon, wherever you are in the world, Amazon pretty much delivers throughout the world. So you may decide to read before class. So then when you come to class, you might have certain questions that you would like to ask in class. Or some people like to learn in the class first and then read afterwards, depending on how you learn. And then some people like to read before and after. So now what you would like to do is with that, Breathing mindfulness meditation and building up your practice of the moral conduct is get in the habit of reading throughout your week. And you're not interested in sitting down and doing like a full hour or two of reading. None of these chapters should actually take you that long to read. I think the longest chapter might be an hour to read, but you're not even really interested in sitting down and reading for an hour necessarily. What I would suggest you do is read kind of 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes a day where you just get in the habit of just reading a little bit and then you sit with that for a while, and you kind of chew on that, and you kind of think about it, you kind of reflect on it. You look around the world, and you start trying to independently verify these teachings. And then the next day, maybe you read another 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It's like taking little bites. If you were going to eat, you wouldn't take you know, huge, gargantuan bites and then try to chew on it and digest it. You would take smaller bites, chew on it a little bit, and then swallow and then you would take another small bite, and you would chew on it a little bit and swallow. And this is how you gradually bring the teachings into your life, rather than, you know, taking in an enormous amount of information all at once, you just gradually do this, slowly but surely. And realize, like what we were just talking about with Joe, is that you're not gonna learn everything the first time, that you're gonna need to repeat things more than one time, and this is normal. That's why the book is called developing a life practice, the path that leads to enlightenment, rather than develop this right now. Right? It's develop a life practice that it's going to take some time for you to be able to gradually build this practice up and know that it's a lifelong journey. You'll potentially get to enlightenment long before the end of this life, but you approach it as knowing that it's a long-term thing, that it's not something that's six months or a year or two years, it's a longer journey than that. But when you're standing at the bottom of the mountain, the mountain always looks really tall. It looks like it's really hard to get up the mountain. But when you start gradually walking step by step, you just focus on the next step, and the next step, and the next step. And as you're making your way up the mountain, you realize that it wasn't so tall after all, and it wasn't so hard after all. And the beautiful thing about this path to enlightenment is once you get to the top of the mountain, normally when we do climb a mountain, we have to come back down you know, we might enjoy the view and the fresh air while we're up there, but we've got to come back down. But with the path to enlightenment, when you make your way to the top of this mountain and you get to enlightenment, you don't have to come back down. The mind is permanently enlightened. You'll experience this peace and joy for the rest of your life. So you'll be able to stay up there and enjoy the view and enjoy the fresh air. But the mountain always looks bigger when you're standing at the bottom. So just gradually walk your way up the mountain slowly but surely as you're coming to classes, as you're reading the book, as you're meditating, as you maybe reach out for guidance and things like that. Just gradually do this. So next Sunday, we're going to be doing chapter one. This is titled Universal Teachings, Love, No Harm, Good Morals. And when you learn this, this is where you're going to learn about how various traditions that you might have been exposed to in the past are somewhat connected to what the Buddha is actually teaching. And then on Wednesday. I'm gonna be sharing with you loving kindness meditation. So if you've been working on your breathing mindfulness meditation, now you're gonna get another meditation to incorporate into your practice. And if you're just fine hanging out with breathing mindfulness meditation and you're not ready for loving kindness meditation now, that's fine, just work with the breathing mindfulness meditation. If you feel like you're ready to learn the next aspect of your meditation practice and build that up, then that's where the loving kindness meditation comes in. because loving-kindness meditation is gonna address the ill will, that fetter that we talked about today. So, you decide for yourself. Everybody's on their own independent journey. There's nowhere that you're supposed to be. There's nowhere that you're expected to be. I have no expectations of any of you as students. This is your own independent journey. I'm just here to guide you and help you along with that journey. And you decide how you would like to go forward based on when you read, how much you read, when you come to classes, what meditations you practice, and things like this. Where you need help figuring that out, You can talk with me privately or talk like Joe just did in class and ask questions, and I can help you to figure out how to best move forward. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next two classes. So I'd like to thank all of you for your questions. I'd like to thank Chrissy for moderating. I'd like to thank you for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing these teachings. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee